Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. Today, we're going to be talking about the Cowboys turning on their coaches as anonymous sources. Analytics in the NFL, the Dolphins' decision to start Tua, the easiest and the hardest schedules coming up the rest of the season. All that and more on the NFL Show coming up next. Today's episode of the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Getting great car and home insurance from State Farm at surprisingly great rates? That's like drafting a player that becomes an all-pro, the real deal. State Farm agents provide personalized service so you can customize your insurance to fit your needs. Like a GM putting together their very own roster, you need a team that supports you, and State Farm's got a great one. In addition to agents, the award-winning mobile app helps manage coverage, pay bills, file claims, and more. With a great price and even greater service, State Farm goes from strength to strength. Choose insurance that always brings its A game. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerNFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerNFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Chris Vernon, and joining me as he does every Wednesday is Warren Sharp. Hey, Warren. What is up, Chris? All right, we got a ton of stuff to get to this week. Good stuff, too. I'm excited for today. Um, Let's start with, I hate to start with this, Warren, my beloved Dallas Cowboys, who we talked about last week on the show. Maybe we're getting, uh, you know, not enough credit from the lines makers going into the Arizona game. And it turns out they got too much credit from the lines makers going into the Arizona game. And that's not that's not the big story coming out of Dallas. The big story was Jane Slater, who does a tremendous job covering the Cowboys for the NFL Network, went on said outlet yesterday and said that in conversations she has had with Dallas Cowboys players, they have said that they the coaches don't teach, they don't adjust on the fly, and they just aren't good at their jobs. Um, now, who knows who is saying this? Who knows if it is the unanimous opinion of the Dallas Cowboys, but it is certainly not the kind of conversation you want out there surrounding a football team. A football team that, by the way, is unbelievably in first place in their dreadful division. <laughs> uh, but what did you make of that report Um is it a worthwhile report in in your mind? I, and when I say worthwhile, not mean somebody said it. Are they right? We cannot know if they don't teach. But in terms of the charge that they do not adjust on the fly and they just aren't good at their jobs, what do you make of anonymous Cowboys saying that to the NFL Network? Well, I mean, it's certainly interesting. Look, you have to go back to what Mike McCarthy was like back in Green Bay the last couple of years before he was let go. And it w- was he carrying that team or was Aaron Rodgers carrying that team? Why was Aaron Rodgers performing the way that he was? Because I am completely convicted of the notion that quarterbacks are so completely and utterly tied to their play caller. And, you know, Rodgers' performance definitely was dropping off. Was that because Rodgers can't play football anymore? He can't throw the ball down the field? He can't read defenses? All that's failing him? Or was it because Mike McCarthy wasn't helping maximize Aaron Rodgers' talent and getting the most out of that offense? Um, so that those questions still linger. And then they play into what's going on here in Dallas. Now, Dallas is kind of like the Eagles. I mean, I, I, I tweeted about it during the game Monday night. 
you could take both of their offensive lines that were playing at ha- you know in the second half of their games this past week, week six, take both of their offensive lines, combine them together, and there's a total of two starters that were forecast to start out of 10, right? So these lines have been decimated with injuries. The defenses have had injuries. I mean, the Eagles can't trot out any wide receivers, any tight ends now. Like, everybody is down for them. Um, the quarterback for Dallas is down. So there's a lot of things that are beyond the coach's control that these teams have just been ravaged by injuries. So you have to take that into consideration as well. But when players are saying that the coaches are not making adjustments, that is something that appears to be potentially the case. Uh, whether or not they can coach or do their jobs at all, I, I can't I can't really opine on that. Right. Um, they haven't been doing a good job. Let's say you can say that you can coach, but you're actually not doing a good job of coaching. So I, I think that's maybe the case, not that they just can't coach. They don't know what they're doing at all. Um, I think that maybe some of the schemes and s- that they're using are a little bit too complex and they could be dialed back to get the guys playing with a little bit more energy, get the guys playing a little bit more instinctively, uh, reactionary in terms of the defense. We've seen other people come out, people that are far more intelligent than I am, who've studied the tape and have the opinion that it's both a execution slash effort issue as much as it is a schematic issue. So I don't know which one is more weighted there, but I think both are issues. So in in general, I think it's an issue about, it is an issue about coaching in general. And I don't know what the ultimate answer is, but I can tell you this, it's going to be hard to get the final answer here, Chris, uh, this season with the players that are currently rostered. It's just hard. Okay. All right. I I get it. And, and I have, I have made my excuses about the offensive line. I mean, and it is, it is such a tremendous shame when you're two, three years removed from, you know, Travis Frederick and Zach Martin and Lyle Collins and Tyron Smith. I mean, this was as good offensive line as there was in the world. And mm-hmm. now, two years later, I don't even know any of the people that are in there. That being said, you know, it is it is the coach's job to get to maximize what you do have. And there are players that I watch that I sit there and say, why is that guy not awesome anymore, right? Why Why am I watching? What, what happened to Jalen Smith? What happened? I, I get it. Van Der Ash just came back. But what happened to Demarcus Lawrence? What the F happened to Ezekiel Elliott? Like, what? what is going on? He has never been a guy that is uh, uncareful with the ball. And he puts it on the deck all the time now. Michael Gallup, I mean, just dropping a wide-open touchdown in the end zone. I mean, like, yeah. just weird stuff where it's like, it's like what you do have, even the good players you do have, aren't performing like good players. And that's what's crazy to me. Like, what happened to these guys? And now you hear that and you kind of put it together. And it's it's hard not to think, geez Louise, you know, I went through 10 years of bitching about Jason Garrett every friggin' week, and this is what I get. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, no, I, I definitely hear you. Look, if you look at a team like the Philadelphia Eagles, right, like, and and I know you don't like the Eagles, but they're they're a, a team in your division, and they're in a similar situation. O line ravaged with injuries. The one good thing that you guys had going for you, and this is what I didn't really understand. Like, let's just talk game plan here. Let's just talk. Let's just talk game plan here with the way that you guys started that game. You have Andy Dalton at quarterback. Now I know he's quote unquote your backup, and I know he's quote unquote worse than Dak. And those two things are both accurate. He is worse than Dak. He is your backup. But you know what? He isn't. He he isn't worse than most of the other backups in the NFL. And in fact, he's been a starting quarterback in the NFL for years and years. And a lot of teams would love to have him as their backup in case their quarterback goes out with an injury. And you are designing an offensive game plan that you still have all your receivers, right? Like, I know you don't have your Blake Jarwin, your number one tight end, but you have every single receiver. They're up and they're healthy and they're playing fine right now. Design a game plan to maximize the skill set that you have. Instead, their entire game plan was schemed around Zeke Elliott. At one point, I believe they had run 23 offensive plays in the game, and Zeke was the focus of over half of those plays between his runs and his targets 
he had two fumbles. It was a completely inefficient way to game plan an offense with a quarterback like Andy Dalton, who is still capable of throwing the ball down the field, design a game plan that's going to let him throw the ball on some early downs, get into rhythm, get comfortable. The Arizona Cardinals secondary, we'll see when they go up against the Seahawks, but I am not somebody who is like, oh my God, Arizona Cardinals secondary. We got to run the ball a lot with Zeke because I'm so scared of these guys. Like They are definitely beatable. They've played a very easy schedule of opposing passing offenses year to date, and they could have designed a better game plan, and they did not. And they got into a massive hole, and then that's all she wrote. And you're right. Some of these guys were not stepping up. Uh, Some of these guys were not performing. It did not look like the focus was there, and that is the coach's job, right? Like The coach's job is, to give these guys the mindset, I mean, hell, Texas football, high school football like, is a hotbed. You you have high school coaches all the time coaching up rosters of players that aren't necessarily as talented as others, but stepping up onto a big stage. This is Monday night football, a national televised game. I don't care if we don't have all of our best players here. The guys that are here have to do a great job of executing this game plan. All the world is watching you guys on this massive stage perform. And they did not live up to those expectations. It was like they didn't care to be there. Their head wasn't in the game. And that is the coach's job to get those guys ready. And you usually get the, okay, Dak went down. Let's go win it for Dak. Let's prove that we're going to be okay without him. And you usually get, uh, in many cases, some kind of a grand slam effort when you're down a guy because they try to rally around. They know they need to do it as a collective. And instead... They were just an absolute disgrace. Let's move on. I'm tired of talking about them. I never want to talk about them again. 0-6 <laughs> <laughs> oh, against the spread, by the way. 0-6, oh, yes. Warren. Yeah, it's it's it, it'll, it'll write this, sh- this ship will be righted at some point. The books are not going to continue to <laughs> let Dallas. But look, this week already, we've got the Dallas Cowboys. They opened as a two-and-a-half-point favorite in Washington, and now I that mean, line has been bet down to a pick I'm sure it has. <laughs> if you bet on the Cowboys, you've lost your ass. Trust me. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the video that's making the rounds, which is the pro football talk guys, Mike Florio and Chris Sims, debating analytics departments in NFL front offices. Um, and in addition to that, this is all based around the Romeo Cornell decision that took place over the weekend in the Texans Titans game. So, For those that did not see it, at the end of the game, the Titans went up by seven points. They scored, I'm sorry, the Texans scored a late touchdown. Romeo Cornell decides to go for two. This would be the dagger play um, that would put them up nine, then make the Titans in a position where they would have to score twice, in in effect, ending the game. Um, Instead, they missed that two-point conversion, and that leads to the discussion of why didn't they just kick the extra point going up eight because if they would have been up eight, then it would not have enabled uh, the Titans to come down the field, score, take the game to overtime, and then win the game in overtime. And so this decision then led to a broader discussion about analytics, its place in the NFL, and whether or not somebody like Romeo Cornell would have made that decision if it weren't for the advent of analytics departments in the NFL. So first, let's just go through game theory in your mind, Um, because this is something that people are split on. You go up by seven with, what was it, a minute 20 left? Do you think that the team should kick the extra point, or should the team go for two there on a general basis? Look, all I can say is, That this isn't even like that decision is so far removed from what these guys were actually talking about. And and I think this decision has been like probably at this point on on Wednesday, halfway through the week, a little over discussed. So what what I'll what I'll say is that I don't really think that this is all that much analytics intensive. This is more game theory type discussion where you're making the decision that you would rather win the game on that play and that. If the other team is able to score a touchdown, because that's that's 
the whole issue at play here. If the Titans are able to go back down the field and score a touchdown, because it's irrelevant if they can't. So forget the fact whether they can or they can't. You are assuming that they are able to score that touchdown, and you are trying to see if they're going to be if you're going to for, allow them to just kick the extra point or not. By bottom line for me is that I would rather win the game in that situation, go for two. If the Titans go back down the field, they're not going to go for two. These guys are talking about, oh, well, everything will flip on its head when the team that's trailing is going to go for two in that spot. Look, the reason that you're going to go for two yourselves, the Texans would go for two, is because they're scared of the two-point play that the other team has and Derrick Henry's probably going to be able to score that two-point play. So they want to just be able to win the game. And that's the reason that they did it. But this isn't even like, it's kind of irrelevant what I think in that situation. The more interesting perspective here is the other stuff that these guys were saying during the conversation. But what do you think? What did, did you, were you upset with their decision to try to go for two there? I think that it is I think, and, and this is true of many different sports, and I also think this is true of the whole football guy, analytics guy discussion, that there is there is room for both sides to be right about this. I don't think it is cut and dry uh, in that particular situation. And it can't just be based upon, it can't just be results-based. I, I think it was fascinating. I was listening to... Uh, Mike Lombardi, and he was talking about the decision. And, and the reason this is instructive is because Lombardi was in a lot of front offices for many different years. And so this, this gives you a sense of what a guy in a front office thinks like. And his sense is, if you are up, if you go up seven, that at that point, if I kick the extra point, from that point on, I need three things to go wrong in order for me to not win that game. I need to A, give up a touchdown, B, give up a two-point conversion, and C, lose in overtime. If I kick the extra point, I only need two things to go wrong for me to not win. <laughs> and, and I know that sounds base level, but that is how a lot of guys view this. And I don't think that that is, I don't think that's ridiculous. I don't think it's ridiculous, right? For a, for a guy to say, what are we doing here? Like, we're thinking too much on this. Kick the freaking extra point, go up by eight. You know, if they come down, they score, they get a two-point conversion, so be it. We've had both things go wrong. Hopefully, we're going to get a stop. That's what, I mean, hopefully my defense can go out there and win the game. All, all I can say is that, like, let, let's let's shift this to the other stuff that these guys are talking about. But all I can say is that if you have a situation where... What I'm trying to say is this stuff has been going on for years with or without an analytics department involved. I highly doubt that some analytics guy was in Romeo Cornell's head telling him exactly what to do in this situation. We would have to ask him. I haven't heard any confirmation that he has said, well, some analytics guy told me that I should be going for two here. Coaches for years, well before they even invented analytics departments, were like, what the hell? Let's go for two here. Yep. What the hell? Let's just try to win the game here. Like this has been going on for years. The cool thing about this is that it sparked this massive rant between these two guys on this podcast. And that's really the the interesting thing that I want to start. Discussing. All right. All right. Let me hear. Let me hear what you took away from it that either bothered you or you agreed with. I'm going to imagine you agreed with nothing. Well, okay. So these <laughs> these guys, you're right. I I didn't agree with very much here because I don't really know what the hell these guys are even talking about. These guys are acting as if the analytics gurus that are on these teams are like hanging out with the owner. They're the owner's best friend. They're eating every lunch with them. Then they're going out onto the practice field. They're telling the they're kind of running the practices almost. And the coach is just a robotic yes man to what the analytics people are saying. And Working with these guys and 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 being involved in this process myself, I can tell you that that's not what's happening. Yes, there are reports that are delivered to uh, front offices that talk about analytics, but but here's the thing that I have that I that I really wish was a bigger part of the discussion when it comes to analytics because I always call it the low hanging fruit. Everybody when they start talking about analytics in football wants to simply talk about fourth down decisions, go or kick, those types of things. And I always say, that's like the most basic level of analytics. Like the stuff that I'm doing for teams is not, is, and I, I know that there's other guys that are involved in this that might be focusing more on that. 
right? And it is an important thing to help teams figure that out. But that's like basic type stuff that that influences the game. Uh, It has a high trigger rate in terms of like the results, what your decision here is and how much uh, expected points you're adding based upon that decision. But you know what is more influential over the course of the game is what you're doing on first down and second down and those decisions. And I can tell you that a lot of the analytics people that are working on teams are completely involved with helping outline. And that's what it really is. It's outlining strategies that are going to work. And these guys here on this podcast are talking about, well, you know, they're like influencing these one one or two plays and they're the ones controlling these types of situations. Meanwhile, these same guys are talking up what Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks are doing. They're writing about it on their website. They're talking about it on their podcast and how great that is. They're talking up Josh Allen and how much he's improved and how well the Bills are doing. Obviously, they lost a couple of games, but in general, prior to how, how great the Bills are doing this year. Do you know what those two teams are doing? Those two teams are incorporating more analytics into their game planning decision-making and their processes. And that's why those teams are successful. It's because of analytics. It has nothing to do with like necessarily, oh, well, they look at this team. They're getting so much more aggressive on fourth down. League-wide, that's happening. We already know that. But look at what those teams are doing on first and second down. Look how much more those teams are passing the ball. Look at what their strategies are on a week-to-week basis and how they're changing and evolving. It's because of the analytics that those teams are actually performing to the level that they are. So stop sitting here trying to shit on analytics people or in the analytics space about how we're trying to bully coaches into doing different things when the fact is that most teams are improving because they're incorporating more and more analytics into their daily processes. And that's why these teams have higher thresholds and are performing at a higher rate. So, I mean, I'm not sure what you think of that. I'm sure I'm going to think of some other things to say, but all right, here's what I'll say. I've covered intensively at least seven or eight different NBA coaches and along that way, all all manner of front offices, including ones that hired, you know, big time analytics guys. And I have seen I have seen fights between coaches and analytics departments. I've seen myself fight with coaches over analytics. And so this happened in, listen, it happened in baseball first and then it happened in basketball. And now it has made its way to football and football is always going to be the most the most difficult, right? And and the most resentful um, about things. Number one, because it is the most team-based. And I'm not talking about the play calling and the stuff that you're doing. I'm talking about some of the different numbers. It doesn't always hash out because so much of it is that I, I think what, what makes it harder in football for there to be football coaches and analytics departments, as you say, get on the same page is because of so much noise that there can be within a football game, right? And and that if if your analytics guys don't understand what is supposed to happen in a said play, then they are automatically discounted. I'll give you an example. So in basketball, right, one of the seasons I sat next to Tayshawn Prince, who was one of the great defenders and part of the 2004 uh, championship team for the uh, Detroit Pistons. And I sat by him throughout that year. And I was always a lineup data guy, a, you know, defensive rating, offensive rating guy. Like I was I was deep into it NBA wise. Right. And sitting with him and someone that sees the game completely different throughout a season and him pointing out who messed up a play or why a play was successful or whatever, it it made me realize how little I knew just by looking at the numbers, right? Because, and, and I will also tell you this, Warren, for the first time in my life, I'm coaching this year. My son didn't have a football coach this year, and I said I would do it. Now, it's just flag football, right? But I'll give you an example. And I have gained a greater respect for coaches than ever before me having to do it. because. Let's just say there was a play on, uh, in our last game, right? And I call out the play, and I've got a kid, and let's say his name's Hank. And I tell Hank, I say, look, they've got Bradley, this other kid playing safety. You have got to drag all the way across the field because the kid's a ball hawk, and we are, we are throwing away from him every single time, right? And we're throwing it to Cy up the sideline, our best receiver. So anyway, the play plays out. Yeah, my, my quarterback I goes like how you, let me inter- interrupt. Yeah. I like in this story that, 
you start off by saying like, let's say the name's Hank. And then you're getting very, very specific with these other guys' names. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it is Hank. So I didn't want, I didn't want to call him out. He's fifth grader. It's not his fault. Okay. But it's a good, it's let's a go, good, Hank. And, and these are fifth graders. So, so anyway, going to Cy. Yes. We're going to Cy up the sideline, right? So my quarterback drops back, right? He rolls out to the right. He knows he's throwing a side on the sideline. He throws it to throw it on the sideline. Who picks it off? Bradley. Now, what the F is Bradley even doing over there? Well, he's over there because Hank went the opposite direction from where he was supposed to go, right? And so you could sit there and you could say, what the hell are you doing? Why are you throwing at this guy? But if I don't have, if you didn't have the understanding that I, what I drew up in that huddle and then the way it played out, that's when I take the step back and I say, all right, this is why football coaches, when they go in the meeting room and they are listening to the guy give out all the numbers and the guy that gives out all the numbers can't explain why a play went wrong or why a play went right, that Romeo Cornell says, hey, uh, I, I know they're telling me I should go for two here, but I really don't want to because my right tackle has gotten blown up the last five plays and he recognizes that, but the numbers say something different. All I'm saying is that once you are in the middle of it, I now have a better awareness of why there is this break. And when I say back to the basketball things, I have covered coaches that are simpatico with analytics departments and get those reports and take those reports to heart and then we'll adjust what they are doing, lineup-wise, data-wise, substitution-wise, Etc. based upon what those analytics told them. I have seen others that say, this is nonsense. It's nonsense, right? Like, I mean, like you don't, you don't even know, you don't even know what our plays are supposed to be. You don't even know what player messes up a play. You know, I'm sitting there coaching these guys. I know where the play was supposed to go. I know what was supposed to happen on this play. And I know why we failed. And your number can tell me whatever your number wants to tell me. But I'm sitting there and I know what their coach to do and what these guys are doing. And this guy F's up all the time. I don't care what his PER is or his offensive and defensive rating and what our lineup statistics are. I, I know what's supposed to happen and what is not happening. And now I'm going to defend them on the, the going out to lunch thing. Warren, you do your analytics and your reports from afar. There are guys in those front offices that do have lunch with the owner. I will tell you, that is true. And and they heard that from somebody. You no, know no, what no, I mean? no, 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 no. I'm not saying none of that is, 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 is possible once in a while. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that the analytics people don't hold meetings with the owner once a week. Like, first of all, let me go back to your, your I got yeah. a couple of points on this. Let me go back to your statement about the coaches that say that, that analytics is nonsense. Okay, I mean, just so people understand out there, Analytics is just the processing of information into into an easy to digest manner so that you can look at look at it. You can analyze more data in an easy period of time and make an educated decision based upon the data. That's all it is. It's not some sort of a, a magic black box oh, that we oh, don't know I, what's the, going hey, on. There. Let me take a quick 20 second time out. All those coaches that said they were nonsense uh, are no longer coaches. Okay. So let me just okay. let me let me so just we're not, make that so you're, you're that not clear. supporting those guys. Okay. No, so no, no. we 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 don't we don't have to discuss the the people who just want to make uh, off the cuff decisions not based on data and just go with their gut right and 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 we're also not discussing the fact that coaches can't go with their gut right like on certain certain plays where guys got injured and you have to substitute or this other team has this lineup out on the football field and so now we're going to make this adjustment off of what we were planning on doing. Like all of those things come down to what the coach needs to do. The coach, it's his responsibility. Ultimately, he has to answer to that. Um, but I think my issue and 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 it would be instructive if everybody listening was able to go back and hear the the podcast and the discussion um from Florio and Sims on this this notion. But they're kind of talking about the fact that, oh my God, you know, what if the analytics, uh, can you write a formula to show that you're playing the Baltimore Ravens and that they have a defensive line with 300 pounders out there? And 
actually, actually, yes, you can make adjustments for it. What do you think that the people in the analytics department are doing? You think that uh, people in the analytics department are just like throwing up numbers based on <laughs> see, uh, not even looking at like one team versus the other team. We're just looking at, you know, well, in the NFL, if you're if you're uh, on first and 10, this is what you should do every time. No, you're you're game planning for an opponent. You're helping a coach figure out what plays that he should be calling based upon who is up for his roster and who is healthy and who he's playing against and what they're doing and their health. And that's how you're, it's, it, that's why it's a lot of work. I mean, you're not just like coming up with league wide numbers. So uh, that, that's not what is happening here. And it's just funny to think that to, to boil it down to, uh, it's this black and white issue and analytics are only involved in these high leverage situations. No, analytics is involved in everything. And it's absolutely true. I will say this. It is absolutely true that analytics are in, in some, in some staffs, in some departments, more of a well thought out, more incorporated, uh, through the fabric of this team. Now, what the coaches want to do and ultimately, there may be some people on that coaching staff that are a little bit more reluctant or hesitant to do what some data guy is suggesting that they do in a certain situation. And that's why the data guy is just the data guy and the coach is the coach. And so the data guy helps provide the coach yes. with the tools and the information to make an educated decision. And then the coach does what he thinks. And then ultimately, in a good process, and this is this should be with any job, not just coaching. There should be a review of what are we doing? Did it work? Could it have gone better? Why did we make these decisions? How can we improve? All these guys are these guys on the radio thing are acting as if like that never happens in no. any other and walk of work and line of work, and nobody ever has these meetings and these discussions about why they did things. No, this happens in literally every single successful business and enterprise, you're analyzing the decisions that you made and could you make them differently next time to get a better result? I mean, this is basic. And and this is where I would tell you that the best organizations are the ones that do get on the same page. They hire analytics departments and there's not this level of resent and smugness from you know, the, 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 you know, they want to frame it as this, uh, 25 year old wonder kin from, uh, from, from Harvard or something. And he's telling Romeo Cornell, who's a hundred years old coach on the sideline, how to coach football, right? Like, like they're the, the ones, the coaches that use this to their benefit and realize that the analytics department is working in concert with them and not against them to make this a better team. Those are the ones that will not only survive, they are also the ones that will thrive. In the end, this is what I will tell you. The, the moral of this story is you can either get down with this, a smarter way to play, a smarter way to play call, a smarter way to make decisions, or you will be phased out. We have had it happen all over the NBA in front offices. That's just what's going to happen and with coaching decisions. And that's just what's going to happen. The, the guys that are going to be reluctant and they're going to say, F those nerds and I don't care about your numbers and you don't understand football, right? Because there, it, what happens is the break. The break is you have one side that says you don't understand the numbers and this dude would be so much better at coaching if he just looked at the friggin' numbers, which he throws in the trash. And the other side that says, why am I? I don't. I don't need these numbers. These guys don't know anything about basketball. They don't know anything about football. They don't know anything about coaching these teams. They don't know anything about the personalities or the flow of the game or who's getting killed, you know, and why something took place. They're, they they don't understand the why. They're just looking at the numbers, not why that number is that number. And you get this break. It is old school jocks versus nerds, and the nerds win. They won in baseball, they won in basketball, and they will win in football. And the football guys better get down with it because these are the same discussions that were being that, that took place years ago in the other sports. 
Right. And well, I could, I could tell you, look, the bottom line is most of the people that are, and this is the last thing I'll say on this and we can move on because um, there's other things to, to talk about this week. But what I will say is this, the guys that are the talking heads in the media right now, especially ex-coaches who are doing this and like talking to some of these other guys and they're help formulating their opinions on this type of stuff. These are guys who never had analytics departments work with them, like especially as expansive analytics departments as exist right now. Those are coaches that are now talking heads in the media that don't really understand, I think, what is really happening on a detailed level behind the scenes. But the end goal here for everybody involved from the owner on down is the owner wants his team to win games. And I can assure you that the coach wants to win games and the analytics department wants to win games, and everybody is going to be happier at the end of the day when you win a game than that shitty sinking feeling when you lose a game. And so there is, I don't care if the analytics guys share some information that the coach then doesn't take, that says, you know, thinks spur of the moment, hey, I know we discussed about this like earlier in this week that we might do this here, or we might call it, but but this is really working. So I'm going to try to keep doing these other types of things off of this. And it has success and they end up winning a game. You know what the analytics people aren't saying? They're not coming back to the meeting and, and uh, meeting room with the owner saying, F this coach, he's so terrible. He did something that worked well in the game, but it wasn't what we told him to do. Like, Absolutely not. The goal is to win the game. The end goal is to win the game. So if we're making decisions that are helping us win games, then we want to continue to make as educated decisions, learn from what we did and continue to make those decisions to win games, add potential expected value to every single play call where possible. And I I think at the end of the day, the goal is to win, incorporate intelligent decision-making throughout the course of the week as you're trying to game plan and then try to make the best decisions during a game that give you the best opportunity to win and let the chips fall where they may, have the coach make his gut decision where he needs to and we can all go to sleep at night knowing we did everything possible to put ourselves in the best position to win this game. Well, and I think it's best summed up where the the reason that a rant like that comes out is because you are hearing from football guys that view analytics and analytics departments as enemies rather than assets, right? That they are not their, they're not their friend. They're not on the same page. They are the guy telling the owner that you're effing up. And they think that they think that we're making, they think that. I'm not going to say we because there's a lot of other smart people that are doing this. They, they think that the analytics people are are making the game more robotic and less interesting. When in reality, incorporating more analytics into the game is making it more exciting. It's increasing the output of these offenses. It's unlocking potential. And it's putting a more watchable, interesting, fun product out on the football field that is actually going to benefit these guys and their jobs because they're going to make more money long-term with a better product out on the field that they're able to cover. So in a roundabout way, like using analytics is actually going to help the guys who are slamming their use in the media. All right, Warren, we'll get right back to it. Today's episode of the Ringer NFL Show brought to you by FanDuel. I've got to tell you about a favorite bet concept this season. You can play same-game parlays on FanDuel Sportsbook, and it's the most fun you can ever have betting. They're pretty simple. All you have to do is combine multiple bets from one game into a single parlay. This way, the payouts are even bigger when you win. What's cool, too, is FanDuel will refund first same-game parlays that you lose on any NFL game each week up to $10. That means you can bet a different parlay risk-free every NFL week all season long. All right, so looking at the games coming up this weekend, the Steelers are playing the Titans. That's going to be the biggest game of the weekend. I think the Titans' defense is soft. And I do think you just saw what Deshaun Watson and Will Fuller did against them. I think this week we're taking the over on the Ben Roethlisberger yards. And we're going to take the over on Chase Claypool, who has super emerged the last couple of weeks. So we're taking the over on Roethlisberger yards. We're taking the over on Chase Claypool yards. Now, note. Risk-free bets apply to the NFL and World Series, not to the Major League Baseball playoffs. You like my picks? Go ahead and bet them. 
with your first NFL or World Series single game parlay of the week, you'll get 10 bucks back if we don't win. Now there is a catch. FanDuel is the only sportsbook app that has these same game parlays. So if you don't already have a FanDuel account, just use the promo code SHARP when you sign up so they'll know we sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code SHARP. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, and Iowa. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max refund, $10. Terms apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in West Virginia. Visit www.1800gambler.net in Indiana. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. In Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerNFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerNFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. What does a true fan look like? It's cheering the loudest. It's never missing a game, no matter what. And for that, you deserve an ice cold reward because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, all right, let's move on. The Bears are 5-1, and one, Warren, and clearly in a great spot at a run at being a playoff team. Do 5-1s and ones make it almost all the time? It feels like a 5-1 and one team would make it almost all the time. And how real are the Bears as an NFC contender? Because um, I, I would say my perception is that people certainly don't have as high opinion of them as they do the Seattles, Tampas, Packers of the world. And part of that's because of who the quarterback is, right? It's Nick Foles instead of Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, or Aaron Rodgers. Um, where uh, uh, So twofold. Are the Bears uh, in pole position to make the playoffs and be a playoff team? And do you think that they are or should be considered on par with other NFC contenders? I don't know that I would. First of all, they, they are on par to make the playoffs. I mean, they they are in position to make the playoffs. I think teams that are five and one this year, the percentage might be off slightly, but it's it's between like 87 and 90 percent. I believe oh, somewhere wow. in that neighborhood that a five and a team that starts five and one would get into the playoffs. Um, it's, it's just below the 90 percent threshold and above like 85 percent. Um, the Bears do have the seventh toughest schedule the rest of the way, although they haven't played. They, they've played a fairly difficult schedule to date. I mean, they haven't played like a terrible schedule. It's not like they're playing all these terrible teams from the NFC East. Um, they've they've only played the Giants from the NFC East. Uh, they've played a number of other teams that are doing well in their division, like the Colts and the Bucks. Um, so. They, but but this is a team that's a very they got to have things go right for them. They can't afford to beat themselves. They don't have any margin for error. Every single one of their wins has been by seven points or less. This is not a team that blows opponents out, that gets big leads, gains margin. They're averaging only 21 points per game themselves. That's even with Nick Foles as the starter the last three weeks. So this is not, I mean, in those games, they've scored 11 20 and 23 points. So this is not a team that's really going to uh, blow the doors off of anybody on a typical week, I guess, unless they're maybe potentially a terrible team. But if you look the rest of the way, they have the seventh toughest schedule uh, going through the rest of the season. It is not going to be easy for them. They play a very difficult Monday night game in LA. You have to look at the 
body clock issue of a team playing in primetime on the West Coast and how those teams perform in the second half of games that adds to the schedule difficulty for them in this spot. I just think it's, it's a tough schedule. They are in good position. They have to hold serve the rest of the way to be able to ensure that they'll get there. Um, but this is definitely above average team. I mean, this is this is a fine team. I, I would say that they're a, a good team. They're a soundly built defensive team. Um, but whether or not they can compete with offenses that really are dialed in and are going to be able to stretch them, that's going to be, change on a week-to-week basis. They did a really good job against the Bucs uh, on a Thursday home game with the Bucs traveling on a short week. Um, but... Uh, without healthy wide receiving core, but um, it'll be interesting the rest of the way for those guys. All right. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up schedule because let's bounce to that. You talked about the Bears schedule, what they've had and what they have going forward. Let's talk about strength of schedule and the changes um, that have happened weeks one through six versus the rest of the season. Um, Who does it really lighten up for? Who does it get much more difficult for? What is your analysis on the way the schedule plays out from here on out. So one of the interesting things, I love discussing the big changes, the teams that have had it really easy and then get much harder. The LA Rams have played the number one easiest schedule of opposing teams um, so far this season. And they're about to play the number three toughest schedule of opposing teams the rest of the way. They've played, as we know, the entirety of the NFC East and they lost to the only two teams that are outside the NFC East. Uh, we talked about it on the show uh, with House on Friday about the 49ers, and I didn't like the Rams in that spot on uh, last week on Sunday Night Football. They lost that game. They lost to the Bills. Those are the only two teams that they played that weren't in the NFC East. They're 4-0 against the NFC East. The rest of the way, they've got a very tough road. I mean, we just talked about the Bears, um, and then they're going to be playing teams, including the Seahawks twice, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they got games against the Patriots later on, the Cardinals a couple of games, and the 49ers another time. So their schedule is very difficult. Um, You could say, isn't the entirety of the NFC West going to have tough schedules in the future because they all have to play each other? So, And we know the records of these teams. I mean, nobody is below 500. The 49ers are probably better than their 3-3 three and three record indicates because of all the injuries they've sustained. Once they get rolling, they're going to be a winning record team. And you got the Cardinals of 4-2, and two, the Rams of 4-2, and two, and the Seahawks are undefeated. The answer to that is actually no. The answer to that is no. Not every team in the NFC West is going to have a ridiculously difficult schedule. Uh, ironically, the team that's the... Um, the best in that conference right now from a record perspective and an efficiency perspective is going to play one of the easiest schedules. In fact, the number two easiest schedule the rest of the way. And why would that be? Well, it's because they've yet to play all these teams from the NFC East. They still have three games against the NFC East, games against Washington, the Giants, and the Eagles, plus they have the Jets. So that's Seattle. That's Seattle? That's Seattle. Then Seattle. They, if they, look, if they got the second easiest schedule the rest of the way, Warren, they have got to be the prohibitive favorite in the NFC, I would think. They, they, uh, in, in my opinion, they are because I don't think Dal, I don't think uh, the Bears are going to sustain a five and one record. Uh, the Packers are probably still, in my opinion, the best team in that division. But they've got issues defensively, whereas the Bears have a little bit of issues offensively. The The Seahawks are interesting because apart from the Bills, who are like a middling opponent that they're going to play, um, the rest of the way, they're either playing like teams in their own division that are good. And we're talking about two games that, that are good from a record perspective and good from an efficiency perspective. We're talking about two games against every single person, every single team in that division, right? You still got two games against the Rams, two games against the 49ers, two games against the Cardinals. Uh, and then you have a game against the Bills, and then you have pl- all these teams that are terrible in the NFC East plus the AFC East with the Jets. So they they definitely, if they can do what they need to do in the division, even if it's just win their home games. If you right? just split, if you just split those right. games versus split, their division, that you're at eight wins. And then if you win, right, those three four. of the other four... At least. Yeah, you 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 sweep those games against. You, you're up to twelve wins. But the key yeah. the key for them is, and this is the key for a lot of teams in both sides of the of the ledger here in both conferences. The number one seed 
in your conference must be the priority. There cannot be on any single week taking your foot off the gas pedal because only one team gets a buy and that race is going to be extremely, extremely competitive this year. Interesting. Uh, who does it get easier for outside of Seattle? Who are the other teams that if you are a fan of those teams, you could at least have hope that the season's going to get better than it has been so far? Yeah, so the Philadelphia Eagles, they're one of the teams that move up. Uh, they've played teams that on average rank 14th, um, and they're going to go up to teams that on average are going to rank 20th in the league. So their schedule is going to get a lot easier. Another schedule that's going to get easier is a team like the Cleveland Browns. Uh, your Dallas Cowboys gets a little bit easier, even though you've played a, a what does average, it matter? <laughs> average to below average schedule. Uh, you can bleep that part out if we don't want to talk about them any longer. Um, you're talking about uh, a team like the Texans are going to get easier. A team like the Vikings are going to get easier. You know, the Texans, we talked about those guys having the number one toughest schedule entering the season. We forecast that they were going to struggle. Las Vegas forecasted that they were going to struggle. That's why they set their win total only at seven and a half wins. Um, but if you look at this team, I mean, they, they've played a brutal schedule so far this year. It doesn't get any easier against the Packers this week. An angry Packers team off of that difficult loss. But, um, you look after their bye, which they have a bye, the Houston Texans do, after this Packers game, they're, they get the Jaguars, they get the Cleveland Browns, they get the New England Patriots, they get the Detroit Lions in four, four straight weeks, plus a game against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. So all those teams rank below average in efficiency at this point in the season. You know, the toughest opponents left that they've got are the divisional opponents. They get two games against the Colts and a game against the Titans. So um, in general, their schedule does get easier from having to play like the Chiefs and the Steelers and one game against the Titans and the Ravens. Like their schedule was ridiculous. It, it is going to be a much easier for them moving forward. But, you know, they're still not a great team. They don't have a head coach. Their defense is very problematic. I'm not forecasting that they all of a sudden come back and race to the postseason here, um, but their schedule will get a little bit easier. Let's knock out a couple of these other topics before we get out of here today. Tua is going to get to start in Miami. It was a really cool story to see him get in the game, get a monster ovation at the end of the Dolphins win on Sunday. And then there was that scene after the game where he is over 300 days removed from his season ending at Alabama. And you could see him just sitting in the middle of the field, soaking it all in. Well, now... A day later, on Monday, he finds out he is going to be the starter for the Miami Dolphins. Now, they have a bye week this week, and then two is going to start. Um, look, they've been good compared to, I think, what a lot of people thought they were going to be. Fitzpatrick's been good, and they're a 500 team, and they're second in this division. So what do you make about this choice by the Dolphins to go ahead and uh, – put Tua in there he'll start against the Rams um for his first game I don't know if I mean coming off a massive injury of Aaron Donald's the first guy you want to see but it's neither here nor there he's getting to start an NFL football game we're going to get to see another rookie which is always fun but just this decision as a whole because uh, Fitzpatrick he's been good for them yeah he has no I mean there's no doubt uh Fitzpatrick I was posting some numbers on him uh yesterday on Twitter about how great of a backup quarterback um, he has been. You can't really ask for anything better than what he's delivered in terms of his ability to keep you in games and win as underdogs, which is certainly what the Dolphins have been. Uh, his ability to cover spreads, which is what we like when if, if you're betting on these teams. But since relieving Josh Rosen in week six of last year, he went 12 and five ATS as a starting quarterback for the Dolphins at 71% cover rate, which is definitely building your bankroll if you're betting on them. Um, and the, on average, his team was seven and a half point underdogs in these games, and they won seven outright, seven out of those games outright. Uh, including four of his last seven starts. So he's done a great job for this team. And they ruined the Patriots playoff seeding. Yes. yes Remember that the last week last of the year. season? Yeah. yeah, that was one of the most incredible calls by Kevin Harlan uh, watching yep. the game live where he's calling the Chiefs game and calling the Dolphins game at the same time. Um, truly a tremendous, uh, tremendous moment in uh, broadcast history in my hey, opinion. Maybe, 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 I mean, if you wanted to go crazy, maybe altered NFL history because 
if the Patriots win it, is Tom Brady in Tampa? Who knows? Like, I mean, you never know the way this stuff plays out if they would have won. Yeah, no, good, good point on that. Um, it, it's it's definitely fascinating to think of what would have happened. But look, the Dolphins, in my opinion, you could not have played this any more perfectly, right? So you go about last season and you're trying to tank, but you're trying to play the thing out the right way. So you want to lose games, but you want to let your experience with Brian Flores be a good one. And you want to keep guys motivated on the roster and competing and trying to perform well. You want to be able to evaluate these guys because if guys aren't trying, if guys aren't performing well, then you're not going to be able to evaluate them properly. So you need to get them playing to their best. I think they were able to evaluate their roster well enough. They won a few too many games that some people thought, oh my God, these guys are blowing their opportunity at the number one pick. But you know what? They had identified that Tua was the guy that they wanted. You know, he was, I'm not saying that if they didn't have the shot at Joe Burrow, maybe they wouldn't have gone after Joe Burrow, but they really liked what they saw in Tua. Tua was obviously the number one quarterback heading into the 2019 college football season. We didn't know Joe Burrow was going to bust out like that at LSU, but right. heading into that season, Tua is the number one guy. They played it out. They got their number one guy. They had patience with him this year. They allowed him to finish up the rehab, work through everything so that he could get to this moment. And I think they planned all along to insert him. And I think that this is not a team, my opinion, that is believes that Tua is going to be that big of a drop-off from Fitzpatrick. Now, I may disagree with that, but they don't. They probably don't believe it is. And even if he is a little bit of a drop-off, I think that their sights are not on winning the Super Bowl in 2020. Their sights are on building a team that can win the Super Bowl over the next several years. So losing a few of these games, even though you're playing hard and trying everything, is in your best interest. Why? Because you need to see what you've got in Tua. You need to get him, as long as he's completely healthy, into the games, experience what happens inside of as a starter in the NFL so that you can get him to the point where while he's still in his rookie contract, you're competing, you have a stacked roster around him, and you can try to win games in his third year and in his fourth year, etc. So hey, I I've, think they're doing the right thing here, even though Ryan Fitzpatrick has been completely balling out. It sucks to see Fitzpatrick have to go back on the bench, but if there's any guy I've read quotes from over the years who has a better perspective on this, I'd like to see him because Ryan Fitzpatrick is all class. I've got a very strange question to ask you that I did not prepare you for, so get ready. I read yesterday that the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys, Kellen Moore, is the last guy to complete a pass in the NFL that was left-handed. Have you ever looked into this at all? Obviously, we I remember Steve Young being left-handed. We all remember that. But there has been an extremely low amount of left-handed quarterbacks does it alter anything? Are you at any, does that, do any teams look at it as an advantage or is there an advantage that could come from being left-handed? Is there a disadvantage in your mind from a guy being left-handed? It does feel like it, it would be very different, right? And even like where guys line up and what hand you hand off with and where, which side you roll out to and which side is actually, you know, uh, your blind side, right? Like oh, your blind, your, your blind side is always your left tackle. Like there's a lot of odd things that come with it. And I was struck by, I did not realize. And Kellen Moore was obviously never a starter and barely completed any passes as an NFL quarterback. Um, that he was the last guy. And that was five years ago. Have you ever, or four years ago, have you ever looked into it? Well, the sample size is so low with this yeah. that it's really hard to pull anything conclusive. But you're right in terms of the adjustments that this team is going to have to make during their bye week to try to figure out how to, like you said, the the, the right guard and the right tackle are now the quarterback's blind side. Whereas before it was a left guard and left tackle. And they got a couple rookies over there that are going to have to be coached up. Now this is the QB's blind side. It's going to be an adjustment for defenses too, but the offense themselves needs to get comfortable with 
the the delivery angles for any quarterback. I mean, even if he's a right-handed guy, the delivery angles, the launch angles, the way the ball comes in, how the, how it drops out of the sky, whether it's thrown harder or softer, all these things are adjustments that receivers have to make based upon any quarterback, but especially when you have a left-handed quarterback coming in, those things are absolutely factors that will play into how this thing will go. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's good to get as much experience with this as possible to try to figure out what you're going to do here. And so bottom line for me is um, the sooner you can get him out there once he's healthy, this is what you should be doing as a coach in the NFL. This is what a team should be doing. You draft a guy, you let him develop when he's healthy. And when you think he's capable of playing, that's when you play him. You don't just sit him because uh, your 37-year-old quarterback has been balling out and creating a fun environment. Like Ryan Fitzpatrick is not your long-term answer. There's They've obviously analyzed that he is very unlikely to win a Super Bowl for them. So this is the direction that you yep. had. And, and great observation, though, on your part, Chris, with the left-handed nature of this, it is going to be an adjustment. All right, last one before we get out of here, Warren. Is there a turn back to running the ball with great success and a correlation to winning? Um, and I say this because last year, some of the best teams were also the best rushing teams in the league. And this year, some of the surprise teams are the ones that can run it. And so we went through this phase where it was, you know, the, the best teams were the best throwing teams, the best passing teams. And the running game or running backs certainly became less and less valued over the years. And I do wonder when I'm now seeing so many of the good teams also be great rushing teams or teams that have outperformed what we thought they were going to be, be great rushing teams. Is this, is the pendulum swinging back a little bit on this? So my answer to that is, is no. And here's, here's why I went through and I looked at every single team that is leading their division right now. In the, okay. seat, in the standing. So you got an AFC, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and the Chiefs. In the NFC, you've got Dallas, Chicago, Tampa, and Seattle. Of those eight teams, six of them on early downs in the first three quarters, which is the most predictive, like this is where coaches can call what they want to call. Six of the eight teams are actually running the ball less, and they're becoming more pass heavy. Some of the most dramatic teams that have made those shifts uh, from last year to this year include the Seattle Seahawks, who went from 49% pass in that situation last year to 59% pass this year. The Buffalo Bills went from 50% pass last year up to 57% pass this year. The Chicago Bears, they Im- increased their pass rate. Even the Tennessee Titans, I looked yeah, at. Yeah, but, but DeBorn, that's when they're passing. not or That's when they're running the ball, not how well they're running the ball. I understand that it is it's better to throw it on first down than it is to just run it, run it, third and long, right? I get that. Um, but there are also a lot of teams that are very good that are also leading the league in rushing yards. Well, I mean, when you're winning games, you're going to have more rushing yards. Even a team like the Tennessee Titans, right? The Tennessee Titans, we all we talk about is Derrick Henry, and we know Ryan Tannehill is good. But mm-hmm. isolating just the games that Tannehill started for them last year versus this year, they moved from 40% pass last year on early downs of the first three quarters up to 47% this year. That's a pretty big increase. Yeah. Small sample size in what we've got so far this year. What we're seeing, though, in terms of what, what maybe you're seeing on your end from the numbers perspective in terms of the output from these teams on the ground is when you build leads, you're able to run the ball more to gain more total yards. But in addition, when you're choosing the most optimal situations and times to run the football, your rate statistics are going to increase. So if you're running the ball less on first and 10 at the beginning of a game where those runs aren't gaining very many yards, but then you're able to run the ball in situations which are better to run or the box counts. I think this is the where teams are moving to next is you know, you're analyzing what the defense is giving you. This is what Andy Reid did. He admitted to doing it uh, in the rainy game versus the Buffalo Bills on Monday night, the early kick game, was He's looking at what the defense is giving them, and he's reading the fact that they're they're playing soft, they're playing back, the box is not crowded, they're anticipating passing, they're trying to prevent the big play. So on light box counts, they're running the ball, and this is why Clyde Edwards-Alaire went absolutely berserk. So yeah, and so what you would say, and what I what I am viewing is what's happening now with the successful teams is on first and ten, they throw it, they get seven yards, 
Now on second and three, they might run the ball. And all of a sudden, that guy's getting nine to 12 yards on second and three, whereas on if he was running it on first and 10, that may be the two-yard gain. Right? Exactly. You're running the ball more often when it's appropriate to run, especially right. given what the defense is playing at that point in time. And the defense doesn't know, are you going to run? Are you going to pass here? It's a great situation to do either. And then their box count is light. So now we got extra block, an extra blocker here. We got a one man advantage, plus one, plus two, et cetera. So this is when we're going to run the ball. And ironically, you know, you look at the team like the Baltimore Ravens, their offense hasn't been quite as good as it was last year. They were the team that was like crushing everybody because of all these Lamar Jackson runs. They were really inflating some of the rushing stats league-wide. We're still having a lot of the teams that are leading their divisions uh, running the ball more efficiently, but less often. And and again, this is ties back to the beginning of this conversation, how analytics is helping shape how these teams are performing. These teams that are leading their divisions you know, with the exception of the Chiefs, because they've gone up against some teams that are playing soft, and so they're taking advantage of that. Most of these teams are actually passing the ball more in 2020 than they were in 2019, and it's helping them earn more wins and get into first place in their division. And this is the influence of analytics in decision-making processes over the course of the week of prep and during the course of the game, not just like the one or two situations where you could have gone for two or you didn't go for two that everybody wants to talk about and just focus the analytics discussion on that. Um, whereas I think it needs to be broader, uh, way broader than that, because the, the the influence of analytics really is the fabric of, of what a lot of teams, successful teams are doing more often offensively throughout the league. I agree with everything that you said. The only thing that I will take issue with is including the Cowboys and their numbers as a division <laughs> leader. When you are just, they, they, they have to be set aside. You, seven division leaders is fine, right? Don't, don't, include, don't include their stats as somebody <laughs> that is doing things the right way, please. There you I'll go. I a, won't argue with you. <laughs> we have got an unbelievable uh, weekend ahead because we got a, at least two or three really, really fascinating matchups. And then a couple of teams that their season uh, might be on the line even this week if they don't catch a win. But I know we've got that Titans-Steelers game, which is unbelievable. And we've got some other good ones. I know you and House are going to be covering all of it on Friday. Uh, also, Kevin Clark and the crew will be back on the NFL show tomorrow. Warren, I will talk to you next week. All right, my friend. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another edition of the NFL Show. Make sure you're listening to Kevin Clark and the crew tomorrow.